and this is the nerd. Are you remotely interested? Well, I guess I am. Hello, my name's Adam Spring, and this is a remotely interested podcast hosted at remotely-interested.com. So, my rebellious band of remotely interested listeners, we have somebody for number 20, if you haven't guessed by the introduction, that is kind of special. So, James Rolfe, the angry video game nerd himself, sat down with me in a late December 2017, and we had a little chat, as is becoming something of a popular thing with these interviews. I also decided to get a few friends of James's, get a few friends of mine, get them together and comment on some of the things that we discussed. And by comment, I I just asked them a few questions and they answered and spookily, it seems to fit in with everything very, very well. And those are Kevin Finn, lifelong friend to James Rolfe and also co-director, co-writer of the Angry Video Game Nerd movie. We also have the ever-gracious Kim Justice, who, as a YouTuber in the UK, is solid gold, both as a content generator and both as a person, and is also somebody clearly influenced by James Rolfe. So Kim gives her opinion on James and the Cinemassacre movement. And then finally, we also have Greg Dykstra. Now, there was a certain symmetry to having Greg give some comments on this because he was actually remotely interested podcast number one. Greg has become a friend. And also as of this podcast, he was about to go into an award ceremony, wondering whether he would or wouldn't win an award at the Annie Awards in Los Angeles for Coco the movie. So Greg from Pixar Animation Studios also gives his take on special effects towards the end of this podcast. James himself, it's said a lot in this one, but he's an absolute genuine human being clearly has time for anyone interested in what he is doing and also as well given the quality of his content very very humble the reason why this has crowdsource production in the title is because that is essentially what james has done he has i wouldn't say he hasn't compromised in terms of his position as a storyteller but i think his journey to becoming a filmmaker was a very organic process. And along the way, he didn't just pick up the skills with the tools needed, and that could be analog video or it could be digital video editing. We do discuss this, so that's a little little teaser for you. It's also about the people that that he knew and found along the way as well. And certainly Kevin's contributions to that, who, again, thank you so much, Kevin, for your time. That really highlights that. And if you haven't seen the Angry Video Game Nerd movie, after listening to this one, please go and do so because their discussions separately to other, to one another but feeding into one another of the process of making that film will really give you a, a better appreciation of it if you watch it again. I mean, I've, I've watched it and it, I mean, it's fantastic. I'm not, I'm not going to say it isn't. I think they did a wonderful achievement, particularly on the budget and what they had. Also as well, I think another useful thing for someone listening to this would just be if you're thinking about making videos yourself or wanting to become a better filmmaker or anything like that, this one really is a 101 lesson. So even if you're not interested in the angry video game nerd, how couldn't you be? But even if you're not, this one's got a little bit for everybody. So it's enough from me for now. Thank you for listening to 20 of these podcasts and let's make sure we at least get to 100. But until then... I'll leave you with James. Oh, well, uh, 
I got interested in film when I was a kid, uh, making movies in my backyard. And uh, there wasn't any way to exhibit them back then. It was a lot different. Uh, the world's changed a lot with YouTube. So I couldn't imagine what that would be like. Because, uh, you know, when you film something back then, you don't really have uh, any plan with it. It's just like, hey, you know, let's go make a movie. And um, I wonder how that would be different now if I was a kid today and and YouTube exists and you'd know that there's a place where you can show it and that lots of people will see it. In a way, I'm kind of glad because I, I, now I can be a lot more selective with the works that I show because I probably made a lot of them that were crap that were probably not really worth showing. But, you know, I still post a lot of my old videos. You work with what you have back then. And where do you think your career would be now without having YouTube? as an outlet? Uh, I, I have no idea really without YouTube. Um, I was pursuing film festivals and that kind of, you know, things of that nature. But once YouTube came around, it, it, you didn't have to do uh, things the traditional way anymore. Now you can kind of do it yourself a little more. And where did the idea for Cinematica come from? You know, both the name and what your brand, I guess, instills. Basically, Cinemasker means like an untraditional way of filmmaking, of not doing things by the rules necessarily, just doing things uh, which just seems natural. And how filmmaking is always this huge challenge, and there's so many odds against you, but you just go on this Cinemasker rampage your way through it. So that's what it was really about. It's basically like massacring the traditional way of doing films. That's kind of what it meant. You know, now obviously, famous example. Angry Video Game Nerd, the movie, you crowdsourced a lot of the development of that and also as well, you know, the distribution. What were the key lessons that you learned from that massive process? A lot. It was just like a hands-on film course. Um, like there's so much, like really it should just be a book. Like I don't know what, how to summarize it all. I mean, let me think of some key uh, aspects. Like I remember uh, locations was a huge um, hassle because we wrote pretty much, you're writing an adventure film every scene is a different place pretty much. So you don't really get to reuse the same locations in it. So it's, it's, you go through the whole movie, it's location, location, location. So that was very difficult. It was also a very huge production that there, I mean, huge for me, it was, uh, uh, worked with union cast, union crew, uh, a lot of crew members, a lot of people there. And, uh, uh, really loved people I worked with, and uh, it, it was great to meet a lot of people while I was out there. But with working with a large number of people, it actually made it more difficult for me. Uh, a lot of times, the notion would be, the more people you have, the more um, you know, the more things can get done uh, simultaneously. It's like, okay, we have more help, right? It should be easier, but that's not really the case. Sometimes it just makes it harder to manage because then you have this bigger beast in front of you. And you have so much going on, so much to pay attention to. For me, a bigger production with more people, it actually meant, in a lot of ways, it was a lot more stressful. Oh, just like the nature of what we did was like, it was just this huge adventure film, like I said. And usually with an independent film, you're advised to do something a lot more low key, something, write something in like a small space, write something uh, without a whole lot of special effects and things like that. But we just decided, you know, we're going all out. We're using the fullest of our imagination with like no no um, limitations. And uh, we still managed to pull it all off. But it's like a movie that would normally be leave it to Hollywood, you know, leave it to uh, – because you're not going to make a movie that looks as good as, as Hollywood. But 
I see no harm of trying anyway. <laughs> if it's like something that it all that matters is if it's a story that you want to tell, something that you want to make. So we made the movie that we wanted to make. So that was really uh, the, the the end thing was like I, I this is what I wanted to do and I and I got to do it. So uh, I feel very fortunate. It was really difficult. <laughs> it was a difficult uh, script to try to do with the money that we had for sure. I think um, I think early on because we started writing that thing in two thousand probably five or six or seven, 2007 maybe. And um, I remember feeling like my role was to make sure that the um, the script and the pacing had like a kind of a long-term story arc and the characters turned and stuff like that. Cause I, I, I had a little bit more long you know, feature length experience at that time. And I just knew that in the short format, he was just like very good. So I felt like I had that to contribute. But I remember you know, to get to the point, I remember feeling like, oh man, this is, really ambitious, all the things that we're writing, feeling a little nervous, like where would the money come from? And then there's a part of your brain that's like, well, don't be a producer, just be a creative and don't don't worry about that. And I think we both shared that mentality of like, you know, let's not worry about it. Let's just, he kept saying, I want to just put in this movie everything I've ever wanted to do. And I was like, yeah, I'll get behind that. And um, there were little moments where it was just, you were a little bit nervous and you had to like turn that nervousness off of like, well, how would we ever do this? Um, and we kept saying, you know, let's let's just keep it schlocky and like, let's, if there's um, a spaceship, let's show the strings and, you know, flying around and stuff like that. Let's just make it campy. And that always, I think, kept us writing in the way that, you know, was imaginative and not not holding ourselves back. That was a helpful bit of freedom to continue to like think big and, be, and continue to be silly with it. But I also think that it was that 10, 15 years of experience working with each other that that helped us overcome something that seemed very insurmountable. James is like family to me. He's like my brother. I don't have a brother in real life, but he's like my brother. And then our producer, Sean, we, we all grew up together. So that I feel like that helped with overcoming the various interpersonal trappings of making a film, uh, the trappings of trying to do something in Los Angeles and having to kind of sort of incorporate kind of like a homemade product into a larger market. And we didn't fully, we, you know, we didn't fully immerse ourselves in, in doing it the Hollywood way, but we, we kind of had to straddle the two worlds in order to, to pull it off. And I think that a lot of collaborations and collaborators, they kind of fold under that pressure. So I think that the longevity of our relationship really helped us get through that. And I think, I think we're both generally pretty mellow and nice. <laughs> so it, it wasn't like, um, it wasn't like big personalities trying to like, do a big thing. I think there was a certain amount of um, humbleness, especially with James, you know, approaching this big thing. Another interesting thing I found interesting about that project was by the time you were making it, in a way, you kind of had built up your support network around you in various different ways. And obviously, you know, Lloyd Kaufman, Mr. Troma, did he give you any advice at all when you were making the film? I remember one small thing is that when we went to record his uh, cameo in the movie, it was me and Mike recording him. And it was Lloyd and, and Michael Hertz, um, uh, the two uh, founders of Trauma. And and Michael Hertz, he's usually behind the scenes. So he's but he's always there, like hanging out. And he was like, he he was there. We were recording Lloyd, and I said something to Mike. I was like, hey, my Mike. I was like, like, hey, put that camera over there or something. And then and then uh, Michael Hertz goes, why are you guys so nice to each other? You should be more of like an asshole. Just say like, hey, hey. Yeah. Put that, put that camera over there, you asshole. 
because that's the way Lloyd would usually do it. He'd probably just like yell at people, but like, I'm just like too nice. And it's true. Like when you're a director, you kind of have to be like a bit of an ass, but I'm not, I just can't do that. I'm like, I always treat people, you know, really nice. So I don't really have the uh, personality of a director. And, um, people told me that before too. I remember when I, uh, I was going to college and I went to an open house and, um, I don't know, I remember, uh, I don't know, somebody, a guidance counselor, somebody interviewing me about like, oh, what, what is it you want to do in art? And I'm like, oh, I want to be a director. And they're like, you're too shy to be a director. I'm like, yeah, I know, but it's still what I wanted to. Like, it didn't really fit in anything. I was kind of more like, I thought I'd be just the kid who's doing like animation or comics, like something where you're just drawing, you know, for hours and hours. That's where I, I started really was in just drawing comics and things that you could do alone. But I don't know. It also became, well, a lot of work, but either way, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to to draw picture after picture after picture. But at least w- when you're drawing, you can imagine anything you want. You could draw any pretty much anything. Uh, with a movie, you have to actually figure out some way to put it all in front of the camera. Like it all has to exist some way or another. But for some reason, I like the process of making films a little bit better because it was less lonely. Um, that was kind of my way of socializing was making films because then you have to get people together. But I didn't really have like a lot of friends who would be in movies back then. Like, you know, when I was in high school and before, there was a few kids on my block and basically I would go and ask them to be in the movies and stuff. And, and, you know, sometimes they would, but they, they were busy too. Like they had their schedules, you know, they were all in the sports usually. So it kind of had to work around that. And, you know, everybody had all kinds of different things going on. But they were awesome, though. I really uh, had a great time with them. It was it was priceless. We just had so many good laughs. Um, but I, I didn't realize how now when there's always kind of like this goal. It's like, oh, you got you want to become a, a, a famous director or something. It, it's really nothing like that. It's, it's when you're making movies in any way, uh, any shape or form, you're already there. You already achieved your dream if, if you're doing it. So. Like, I would love to go back and tell myself, like, oh, this is the this is the golden time, you know, just, uh, you know, just getting your friends together and making movies or doing whatever it is you want to do. Now, more recently, you've had a series of trailers and shorts, a little trilogy, if you will, from the Jacqueline Hyde trailer to more recently Mimal the, How- the Elf. Is there something else brewing in the future of a similar production scale to the AVGM movie? Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm probably, well, I, I mean, I don't know. I can't really say one way or another because there's no um, no definite set of circumstances yet to pave time for a, a movie or something. But I'm thinking it's probably going to be a feature horror film next. And I'd probably do a short film before that because, you know, I, I know how long that these things can take. That's That's the one major lesson that everybody should know is that things take longer than you expect always. It never goes exactly to plan and any simple thing or even even when you know it's going to be a lot of work, still it multiplies. It just becomes more and more. So I'm really trying to go into this next one very logically, but I am trying to do feature horror film. Maybe horror is not quite the word. It's more like a maybe like thriller suspense, but I don't care. It's a horror film, uh, whatever. It's just a little more uh, traditional, a little more a uh, little more atmospheric, more about mood. Not really a lot of gore. It's uh, not very exploitive. Um, something, something like that. Very classic style. And then the short will be something else different. Because yeah, after I did those trailers, like those were my pet projects for 
for those years. And now now my pet project is trying to do something bigger, but it's going to take a lot more time. James has been on YouTube since the beginning, pretty much, and he has always kind of represented um, a high watermark for us, while also kind of, especially in more recent days, being kind of um, a part almost from the platform. Back in the early days, obviously, the technical quality of his videos and the way like he scripted things was... Um, way ahead of what most other people were doing. It was very much a trailblazer on that front, and um, he kind of pioneered um, a whole style of um, internet reviewing, the whole angry reviewing stuff, which kind of obviously came not just from his passion for video games, but also his passion for filmmaking, which is just as big, if not an even bigger part of what he does. And, um, and he's kind of managed to stay relevant in all this time. I mean, he's had to stay in power where so many others don't. I mean... Because um, he's always kind of very much kept true to his character. In He's kind of always stayed a part of it. He's not ever been one for um, a big like social media presence, which in some ways people could consider, well, you need to have a social media presence in this day and age if you want to be successful on YouTube. But James is someone who kind of proves that you don't really need to have to do that. And... And it's kind of helped him because he's he's always managed to avoid controversies and stuff like that that end up affecting 90% of us in these days and times. Um, it's funny, I mean, it's always been the case where, I mean, his um, his contributions to retro video games and, like, pop culture, again, as I said, he influenced a whole genre, a whole generation of internet reviewers. And, and he's still relevant now, like, 12 years later. I always kind of think, to use a um, wrestling analogy, which is going to be really corny, I always think of him as the Chris Jericho of <laughs> internet criticism, just because he's um, stayed around longer than just about all of us, and yet he still manages to keep himself very much relevant where so many others have fallen. I think the thing with an AVGN video is that you don't necessarily even have to be interested at all in video games to appreciate them. You can appreciate the quality of the actual video itself and the humour that he brings to the subjects that he covers. So in terms of your output itself for things like your YouTube channel and other stuff going on that's generating obviously your day-to-day -day income, how many projects at one stage do you think you juggle at a time? Uh, several. I mean, I traditionally don't start the next one until, you know, one is done. But there's always a list lined up and trying to stay on schedule. Because if one project goes behind schedule, then the rest is behind schedule. Um, but a lot of the, the nerd views coming up were shot simultaneously. Like we did like a batch beforehand because we were originally planning another 12 days of Christmas thing. 12 shits miss, but it's not happening. But instead, we're releasing like a large number of videos like over a, a bigger span, like over the fall, winter, leading up to Christmas, instead of it being like a 12-day-in-a-row thing. <coughs> I'm just recovering from a sickness right now, actually. <laughs> Twice this, this year so far, I got real sick, but I lost my voice completely. And uh, luckily, it always happens in between videos. I always get the voice back. But uh, yeah, that goes into the schedule, too. It's like, well, when you got the voice, record, and then, and then you can go into editing when you're sick. And then after that, get a little bit better and time to shoot again. There's definitely like a, you know, a cycle. You just keep it going. Uh, it's hard to do videos consistently because you, you know, when you do something like this on YouTube and it's all you do, like you have to, you sort of have to do it. So when you make this thing, your job, like now it's, now you have to do it. You have to keep up with it because you can't just make one video and then sit back. Yeah. And in terms of your content itself, and I guess James and Mike's Mondays would be a, a good example. Do you find in this interactive age of audience that you have to think about the format of your shows in terms of how much it's going to take to edit them and get them out? Oh yeah. 
like I, I have a pretty good idea now, like how long nerd videos take because I've been doing them for so long and I've always been logging my hours and I know what, what the factors are that make a video longer than normal. Things like multiple games. If it's a video where there's more than one game in it, then that takes a lot longer. Even if you think like, oh, well, I'm only going to spend a short period of time on each game as opposed to, you know, beating a whole game. Still, it's like you're you're playing all these different games and it always adds up to the time. And even when you're writing the script, it's like you sort of have to describe each game before you can start critiquing it. So it kind of adds like because usually if you do one game, you describe it once like what the basics of it is, then you go into the critique and then you can sort of talk about all kinds of things with it, see where it goes. But then when it's multiple games, you have to uh, describe each one before you can really have a chance to say anything about it. And it's sort of these, these big compilation videos, they take so much longer. That's one thing. And then it's like, well, are there special effects in it? And like how many different angles are there? Every time you change if it's just me sitting on the couch the whole time, pretty easy. But if you have, uh, well, now the nerd's standing up. Now he's in the corner. Now now we have to show him looking at the TV. Now we have to show this. Every time you move the camera, all the lights have to move. Um, the microphone has to move. More setups always equals more time. So I'm able to predict better, you know, with the script, how long it's going to take in a video. What you wouldn't expect, though, is the Polybius video was one of the longest I've ever spent in a while. So it wasn't record-breaking or anything like that, but it was a really long one. And it was a really basic-looking video. Like The idea was to make it look like it's homemade, to make it look like without lights, like we didn't bring lights in, which, in fact, we did. Uh, we just wanted it to look like we didn't. It was, it's actually harder to make something look crappy on purpose than it is to... Make it look authentic. Yeah, it was tough. It was really tough to, to pull off that because there's so many restrictions. There's so many things that we're like, we can't do this because it'll make it seem like it's going to be staged. And it's just like, I want it to be as authentic as possible. Like I really just took a camera and, and that's it. But then the, that place was so dark that, you know, the camera needs so much extra light. So, so much time in editing was spent brightening every shot and trying to, you know, make it look like uh, you could actually see things. Because before it was like the footage was so murky. And even with bringing lights in, because we didn't want it to, you to notice that we brought in lights. So we would kind of hide lights. Like there was like a little tiny light that was hidden next to the arcade machine. And that was sort of, you know, lighting up my face. Because otherwise I was like in complete shadow. You couldn't even see my face. Um, and then the sound was just like, there was like a gun range next to us, like a shooting gallery. And, uh, I had to edit out all these gunshot sounds, which didn't even seem that loud when you're there, but you could hear them in the video. And it's like, well, the nerd's supposed to be all alone in this warehouse and you have to cut out every little sign of human life. So it's constant editing. I'd have to use a word from another take to cover up a sound that wasn't supposed to be there. And sort of patched the dialogue back together. And also, like, I didn't, I used a crappy mic that was, it wasn't a crappy mic really, but it was just like, I didn't have any microphone close to me. I just had a microphone that was like attached to the camera. And I figured, well, that'll be fine because it's supposed to sound very crude. It doesn't have to sound high quality, but still, it sounded too crappy. It sounds so crappy that it was like you couldn't hear what I was saying. It was so low 
So I had to put gain on all the audio and like boost the, you know, the levels up a lot. And then boosting the levels up means all the, the noise, the, the room noise behind you comes up too. So it's this, tss, this like static sound. So then I have to cut all that out. So I'm like putting filters on it that remove, you know, hissing noise. But yeah, if you would have seen and heard what it was like before, it was garbage, but it was like, it was too much garbage. <laughs> so it was just a lot of extra work to make it acceptable. He always wanted to make short works, especially in the early days, like in high school and college. Was, I remember we were at a barbecue in Philadelphia and um, we we're hanging out and I was doing a lot of music videos in those days. And he came to me and he's like, you seem to be on like a, a roll with these music videos. You know, how, how do you do that? How do you like get in touch with the artists? How do you, how do you get funding and stuff like that? And um, I was like, well, that doesn't, I mean, you can get into it, but it seems like it's kind of just like the, the music videos ended up seeming like portfolio pieces because there wasn't, you couldn't really live, make a living off of them. So I was just like, yeah, I don't, I don't really know as far as, you know, how to do this. I, I think you need to make full length movies in order to make a living out of it. And we were kind of like fresh out of graduating and we were just kind of like trying to figure out how to do this thing. And, um, and then YouTube came out and we just said it didn't even exist when we had that conversation. And like right on the corner, maybe a year or two later, it came out. And then suddenly, um, you know, he just started making these um, AVGN, you know, movies, angry, angry Nintendo nerd movies um, that were like 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes. And uh, he just started posting them up on this thing. And it, it was just weird because it just seemed like it just seemed like the universe wanted it <laughs> or like kids wanted it or there was, there wasn't many things on YouTube. And so it's just like, he popped up and everyone's just like, suddenly there was like a real need for it. And uh, of course, screw attack came along and helped him, you know, figure out how to monetize the whole thing. But that's kind of like you know, how to survive with, I, I don't know if that speaks to him as an artist. I think James is an artist. It's kind of a combination of being prolific, but then also just extremely genuine that I think is, is the thing that helped him spread. Like he was just very relatable and unbelievable. Uh, I think people just kind of really responded to the fact that, you know, he was like them. And finally there was, you know, all these gamers out there that wanted this, you know, content and he was suddenly delivering it and he seemed like an authentic voice. And the fact that he kept showing up with more stuff, you know, I think that was, that was a lot of it. Yeah, now you've obviously created, in a way, two universes. You've got the AVGN universe and you've got the Cinemassacre universe, and we'll talk more about both of those. Um, but in terms of the AVGN universe, is it sort of a bit surreal to you now that there's AVGN games and you're now really part of that gaming culture and folklore that you started commentating on, albeit accidentally or otherwise, uh, all those years ago? Oh, uh, it is uh, surreal, just that, like, now that there's games that came full circle. Yeah. Yeah, there was lots of fan games, and uh, and then, then we did like an officially endorsed one, which was like a year process, and we did a sequel to that, Screw Attack and uh, Freak Zone games, Rooster Teeth, like they're all, you know, part of that, and uh, they came out really well. That was like the final culmination of it, where it was a game that had all the the same bad things in it as a joke, so it was kind of like making a good game out of bad things in other games. Yeah, it was a little bit brutal, like maybe. It, 
parts might have been a little too hard, but I, I think it was a great uh, challenge. So, yeah, I hope we can get a, another one someday. And in terms of the Cinemasca universe, one of the things I've really enjoyed watching are your movie reviews because they're actually uh, reviews of substance. What are your key influences in terms of, you know, as a filmmaker, who are the big filmmakers of the past or current that influence what what you're doing and, you know, what you've done in the past? George Romero was a big influence to me because in Night of Living Dead, that it was an independent movie, that it was just a bunch of guys who got together who were friends and just made made this movie and it just took on a life of its own. Uh, it was like a movie that didn't follow any rules. It kind of it was just its own thing. Uh, Robert Rodriguez also has been a big influence because he wrote a book called Rebel Without a Crew. And I read that when I was like 13, 14, maybe. And that, that also had that, you know, do-it-yourself attitude. Lloyd Kaufman had the same kind of thing with the first book he wrote was um, All I Learned from Filmmaking, I Learned from the Toxic Avenger. That was really inspirational. Uh, it was also very self-deprecating. Like he made a lot of you know uh, jokes in it. Like it was a very funny book to read too, and hilariously negative in some ways. But uh, it, but it still had that same do-it-yourself attitude. Yeah, those are a lot of the big ones that come off the top of my head. So in terms of, I don't want to keep coming back to YouTube. I'm using using it as an example, but obviously there's other things out there. So decentralized media in general. Over the years, and I will use YouTube as the platform, what have you observed being the massive changes of releasing your content primarily through a channel like that? How has, you know, your relationship with YouTube changed and how has the way in which YouTube do its business kind of changed? Are there any observations that you've got? I don't know. I suppose it's gotten bigger, more people creating content every day. So uh, it's been a good thing. It's helped a lot of people out. Yeah, it's it, it's just big. It's too big to even understand, really. I mean, for you as someone that's got like over 2 million subscribers, do you get invited to things that people otherwise may not? Or, you know, what's it like having that amount of subscription? Because you must be in like the top tier of, of uh, subscription channels. I don't know. A lot of people have asked me like, oh, how'd you get so many subscribers? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I, I, I didn't do anything different than what I was doing before. Just YouTube came into existence. And I start posting videos on it. But uh, I think also I was there pretty early. Uh, I was there, uh, you know, 2006 when there wasn't quite as much. So that was kind of a, a good thing that, you know, if you do something long enough, eventually the technology is going to come out and you'll be in the right place at the right time. So you have to be persistent, work hard for a long time, and then something's bound to happen. As far as it changing, yeah, I'm not sure. Like, it, like I, I haven't changed much. And, you know, as you can see with the videos are pretty much... Nerd videos, they have the same kind of format as they had. So I just keep doing my thing. And what were the kind of tools that you learned on growing up? Did you actually use stuff like the video toaster? And like, what are you working with now? The video toaster. Do you mean like um, the, the, you know, with analog, with an analog editing system? That's right. Yeah. So, you know, like Tim Jennison, New Tech, all of that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the video toaster was like, <clears throat> wasn't it? like a, com a computer-based thing where it was sort of, it you had a computer that was connected to your analog decks. That's right. Correct. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So I guess if you, in a way, I never thought of it like that, but it's kind of like a hybrid before uh, digital editing took over. Like the analog equipment was more like a, a rare opportunity because sometimes, you know, I knew a lot of people who their schools would have it. So maybe they'd have like a, a video class in school and they'd be able to use it 
I didn't really have much of that. I mean, my school had it, but we weren't really like able to use it a whole lot. Um, but I took Saturday and summer courses at a art university and they had a lot of that, those systems set up. So this one summer I got a chance to like edit on, on that equipment and it was a big deal. But looking back, it was, it was still complete garbage because you had to edit in order. <laughs> you, you had to edit the whole movie in order and nobody would have thought any other way. It was like, well, could you imagine editing the end of, of a video and then going back to the beginning, like, or, oh, making a change. Like if you, if you had to make a change with that and the change was early in the video, you'd have to start the whole video over from that point, which is crazy to think about it now that that's the way it was. Like you couldn't go back. You had to just edit the whole thing from beginning to end. And every edit had to be perfect or not perfect, but just the way you wanted it. Um, like, it, like if you want to make a change, it just wasn't worth it most of the time. But uh, then I start hearing about digital editing and, and not many people had it. I, I didn't think it was probably like early 2000s when I started actually knowing people who had it. Um, and uh, my college was very old school. They didn't um, they, they had us editing on 16 millimeter film. So we were splicing film while the rest of the world was going digital. Um, but they had editing uh, software on the computers, except it was in the photo majors apart. I don't know, because they had their the department with the uh, photography. They had Photoshop and everything like that. Um, but every once in a while, you'd be able to like sneak into a room. It was kind of like a, it was like a stealth operation. Like you had to like figure out the schedule and when you could get into a room and, and when you'd be able to like use a computer and slowly all the students, it was kind of like this underground movement to like learn computer ed editing and we'd share it with each other. We'd share the information like, Oh, I figured out how to like set a scratch disc. It's like a scratch disc. Like, what's that? And like, like just the basics, like we just were figuring out the basic concept of like, Oh, okay. So you ingest all your footage into the computer so that your footage is on the hard drive. Like, Oh, okay. I get it. Like you, we just learned this thing ourselves. And I mean, the, the, the school was, was a great experience. I mean, I, I loved the, you know, professors and everything. I loved the my classmates, but a lot of times when it comes to teaching yourself something that you need to know, it's sometimes it just comes down to yourself. A powerful tool, I think, to making movie imagery right now is to combine uh, CG props and, and CG environments with um, practical effects, um, having having the CG enhance the, the practical props and, and uh, sets that are built. Um, because uh, a physical sets will give you, and physical props will give you uh, organic imperfections that I think are a little hard sometimes to mimic uh, in a procedurally built uh, world, and um, and the physics that is that might be recorded in a CG built environment will be very very close to reality, but there will be tiny things that we probably couldn't describe uh, in in detail, but they would be uh, definitely something that would register with our subconscious. Um, I think sometimes uh, CG, uh, CG can, the, 
CG imagery can be uh, amazingly realistic, and, it can, and there's definitely times when there is no way you can tell the difference. But, um, but I think overall, if there's too much of that in, in a shot, um, then our, our brains start to pick up on it. And um, so anyway, including more organic props, you know, more physical props, more physical sets um, will help uh, further the believability and kind of it kind of hides the trick as well. Even even before there was CG, um, a lot of the really good effects people and you know production designers working on a film would combine several different techniques um, so that it kind of like just as you thought you knew while you're watching how something is done. Uh, then it would be done in a different way, and and it would help to keep you fooled. And I think it it, it made it more realistic. And I think uh, also, um, you know, if you if if things if you are watching see you know something where actors can interact with physical props, um, that the the weight what it will do to the actor's arm, for instance, if they pick up something heavy, or if it's something that's supposed to have a motor in it. Uh, you know, like it might have little movements that it that it causes just natural, almost unavoidable reactions in, in the body of the um, actor if they're jumping on some, you know, on the surface of something um, that's uneven. Um, you'll see that. Whereas if you're on, you know, a, a, a green screen stage, you may not catch that. Um, and for the actors themselves, uh, I think one of the advantages is that uh, they enjoy it more often. Um, they, uh, they, it definitely helps put them in the moment. Uh, they have something to react to, uh, so it can improve their performance and improve the believability of the whole scene. So, um, yeah, I, my preference definitely is, um, affect scenes that constantly try to add, um, physical props, physical set pieces, uh, just to make it, uh, overall more believable scene, even if there's a lot of CG enhancement afterwards and, and CG, you know, backfilling and, and stuff that doesn't exist on that. Set. So interesting thing that's coming out of this part of the conversation is this idea of things becoming easier to create through digital technologies and video production processes and also easier to distribute. Um, we've kind of touched on it a little bit, but how would you say digital technologies, I guess, including things like 4G and 5G, anything that's making it easier to stream video, have changed the landscape of filmmaking or media production in general? Um, I don't know. Is that the risk of a short answer? I guess it's just made it easier. Yeah, a lot of things you could do easier now. Uh, I know with effects for sure. I mean, like it's no wonder why the movie industry does mostly computer-generated effects. Um you know, to have something tangible, it's very cumbersome, very messy. So for me, that's a lot easier. But but when I do an effect and it looks cheap and silly, like that just makes the video funnier. So there's kind of like you have a, a lot of leeway for that. Like it's it's okay if it doesn't look realistic because it's funny. But uh, it, it's weird to think though that before uh, computer editing, it was it was just crazy. Like I edit I edited on two VCRs. Uh, I mean which was the closest I could get to the analog gear that the university had. I pretty much just had to master the art of two VCR editing. And then 
then I just think like, well, what, what did people have before VCRs? It's like, well, then it was film. So any generation is able to say that they had it harder than the, you know, the younger generation. So I, I just wonder like, what, what'll be next? Like how much easier is it going to get? I mean, now they have apps on your phone to like add explosions and, you know, <laughs> you can just do all these cool things and pe- people can do it just for fun. Like not, not even have to be a, like a filmmaker or anything. So really the only thing now is like, okay, you have the tools, you can make whatever you want pretty much. It's just, what do you want to make? Like, that's the big question It's just, what do you want to do? Like what kind of story or what kind of message are you trying to give? And one of the things I love about your stuff is the physical effects that you generate and you create. And clearly, you know, Ray Harryhausen must be, you know, a fan of his and stuff like that. But in terms of those physical effects, what's your favorite physical prop or effect that you've created and what would you say is the real difference between having a physical effect over a cgi effect the advantage of course is that and everybody seems to agree is is that it looks um more authentic when there's something in front of the camera even though an animatronic character or a puppet or something will have more limitations than if it were computer generated so obviously it might not be able to jump around and do as much but it just looks so much more real when it's there it sort of blurs the line between video game and movie to me like everything is starting to look like a video game trailer but still it's not to discredit computer generation effects either because they're still a lot of work and they can still um pull off really amazing things like like all these new planet of the apes movies you know the effects were incredible but uh uh, for me my favorite uh effect that i did personally i mean not that i did personally like i had people building it i had uh, people working on it for me was in the nerd movie it was just tons and tons of uh practical effects like we tried to do everything that we could in front of the camera so there wasn't any even though there were some effects that were uh computer generated there were some backgrounds that were green screened but Anytime there was a character, they were real. Like we had an alien puppet. We had well, a puppet version, an animatronic version, and uh, like a stunt version that was all rubber. And uh, the animatronic version, it was like amazing seeing it work because it was like this remote controlled. The, it, the inside of it was just like a robotic skeleton, a robotic armature. And just seeing it come to life was amazing. And we had a giant suit monster with so many parts to it. There were wings that had to be tied up on strings. There were tentacles that had four like arms that were had to be moved about. It was like it was like at least three people or more to like uh, get that thing to work. Like yeah, like sometimes there's somebody operating both the right tentacles. There's somebody operating both the left tentacles. That was two people. Not to mention the person inside the thing. And then you had somebody moving the wings by a pulley. So there could be like four people in charge of moving that thing around. And then all the miniatures, they were so specific. Like we have a van roll off a cliff and explode. And it was like, well, the van, the miniature van has to look like the, the full size van. And it did. And they actually got every single tiny detail of the van. And then the final result, even though you can see that it's a miniature, it's like, Oh wow, look, they actually did that instead of it just being like, Oh, they did it in a computer, which would still be a lot of work. But it's cool when you know that something was really there. So as I was editing this one together, I decided to look at overall YouTube subscription numbers, which it has over a billion subscribers now. And I also looked at the most subscribed channels. So James has over 2.5 million subscribers 
as of the end of January 2018 when this podcast went out. And if you look at the top 10 most subscribed YouTube channels, it's clear that six of them, and arguably seven if you consider PewDiePie, have corporate backing. So it means they have an entire marketing machine behind them. Now, I know James said, well, I got in there early, but the fact that organically he was able to have what will no doubt be 3 million subscribers probably by the end of 2018 and beyond is a very impressive feat. It's even more impressive when, as Kevin Finn suggested, and also Kim Justice uh, suggested as a, as an audience uh, to James, not knowing him personally, but just watching his stuff on YouTube, is he's a genuine guy. His effort has been made through his love of storytelling and his love of the media through which he can communicate effectively. Coming back to this notion of people and technology, which is what this podcast is fundamentally built on, the thing for me that really summed up James was when he said, well, in the early days, I used films as much as an opportunity to meet people as I did for my love of what I was doing. That sums up some of the things that this podcast is trying to explore, that it isn't necessarily about what gadgets you have in front of you or what software you have in front of you. It's about what you're trying to do with it and how it's augmenting the, the human condition in place. So so the human interest story there. And I was very conscious when doing this one, not really to look at it from the point of view of, oh, let's talk about the angry video game nerd a lot because that would be really cool. Now, I wanted to try and get to the crooks of what I thought James was doing through his work, and I think we did do that. To me, he's a a true storyteller, and in terms of filmmaking, he's someone that's been able to, whether it's uh, knowingly or unknowingly, tap into something that enabled him to crowdsource his his work, and also as well, feed into this notion of somebody that's very genuine. Another thing before I go, which I thought was interesting with this one, is this notion of social and cultural capital. I'm banding around numbers like, oh, well, James has got 2.5 million subscribers on YouTube. And I could do it with Kim as well. Oh, Kim's got 40,000 subscribers on YouTube. But what does that actually mean? The fact that we've got to a point where we're looking at things like this and we're thinking about it from a collective viewpoint it's a form of of micro-branding that can be used in a positive way, which I think James and Kim certainly do to an excellent degree. But it can also be used in another way where it's almost like the tails wagging the dog. So you have people putting content out based on trends as opposed to trying to create trends. And I think that's a really important thing to say about James, and I'm going to include Kim in this as well, is they're both people that they're interested in what they're interested in and their success is a byproduct of not necessarily following a trend but following what's true to them and that is why I am incredibly grateful to James for being my 20th guest on this podcast but also as well he's not somebody that does a lot of social media and he's not somebody that does a lot of interviews whether it's uh, intentional or otherwise so for him to take his time and speak to me and to tick another one off the list, the original list. Just a very big thank you. Now, this isn't the last from James. There is an Easter egg at the end. So please stay until the end uh, after the credits to listen to that. But I would also like to end with until next time.
I'll see you soon. So there are many ways in which you can support the Remotely Interested podcast. Money and gold are always good, but give me some of that social and cultural capital gold as well. Like, subscribe, rate, review on the old SoundClouds. Follow those links on the SoundClouds to the Twitters, the YouTubes, the Google Pluses, anything that drives up the metrics. The more you listen, the more I want to do. One final question for you, got to ask, is if you do watch YouTube, what are some of the YouTube channels you enjoy watching? Uh, unfortunately, not much because I don't I don't really have much leisure time. Uh, and when I do, I'm usually watching a movie. So I don't really, uh, basically, I don't really use the internet for leisure very much, but I do try to watch some stuff when I can. Obviously, you know that uh, uh, I watch a lot a lot of the people at channel awesome. And I think, you know, they do a really good job.